Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Hey, how you guys doing? Yeah, good afternoon. If we haven't met before, my name's Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at Beacon. So glad you guys are with us as we continue our series that we're calling The Me I Want to Be. Uh, this is the, the third week in the series. I highly recommend you go back and catch up online if you, uh, you missed the last couple of weeks. But uh, I, I don't know if you guys uh, are like this at all, but for me personally, I, I hate having to do the same task more than once. Like if I've done it, I never want to have to do it again. I want to move on to the next thing. And some of you might remember that uh, we used to have a second campus over in New Hyde Park. And every so often here at Beacon, we'll build these like big elaborate sets for a series or something that we're doing. You know, I'd finish building a set and then I'd kind of have this sigh of relief for like a second. I'd be like, ah, and I'd be like, crap, I have to do it all over again. Uh, I hate, I hate duplicating work. It's like the worst to me. And uh, for this reason, I hate maintenance. I hate maintaining things. Like, I hate paying for maintenance on my car. Like, the fact that I had to get my oil changed then, and I have to get it changed again and again. I'm like, no, I already did it. I don't want to do it again. Like, the same thing goes with cleaning. Cleaning? I've already cleaned the room. I never want to have to clean the room ever, ever again. Why do I always have to clean the bathroom? Like, it just, why? Why? I hate having to duplicate work. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a check-in station downstairs. I built a check-in several years ago, and we liked it, so we decided, you know, I'll go build a second one over at New Hyde Park, and it was made of wood. And I don't know what you're feeding your children, but these kids, they would just destroy the thing. And I kept, like, having to go and, like, fix it, and which I hate doing, so eventually I built a new check-in station. It's made out of steel. Good luck, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I hate I hate maintenance. I do. I don't like it. It's not my my bent or my. I know some of you guys you like love it. You're like this is my groove. I know what I'm doing. I just want to keep doing. It. It's cathartic. Not me. Uh, but unfortunately, the world that we live in is a world where things they get corrupted and there is decay and there is erosion. And no matter the only way to to preserve things is to like lock them away safe and sound. Maybe, but as soon as you bring it out into the world. There are these corrosive forces that, that bring decay and erosion. And this isn't only true for physical things. It's true for our, our spiritual selves as well. That just because we get to a certain place in our relationship with God doesn't mean that we're going to stay there. Because as soon as we go out into the world, there are these, these forces working against us. There's this pattern of erosion that starts to strip away everything that we've built up. And what I want to look at today is uh, uh, we're going to look at the book of Romans. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he actually he unpacks and he kind of explains this pattern of erosion. And so we're going to look at what this pattern of erosion looks like so that we can turn around and figure out what can we do to prevent the erosion from happening. How can we fortify ourselves in such a way uh, because if you guys have been here for the last couple of weeks, we started off two weeks ago talking about this mini creed for 2018, right? Uh, pop quiz, who knows the mini creed for 2018? What's the first part? What's the first part? All 
All right, let's try that one more time all together. He adores me. And, you know, when Robert uh, really unpacked this a couple weeks ago, I, I, many of us, we left, and the weight of this statement, it was, it was meaningful, it was substantial, it impacted us in, you know, positive ways. And our hope, of course, is that when December comes, this mini-creed of 2018 is going to be just as impactful then as it is today. But, but you guys know how these things go. A mantra like this can be helpful, but, you know, a couple months down the road, these kind of eroding factors of the world, it starts to strip away the meaning of these statements and they start to devolve into something new and we say, you know, oh yeah, there's a God, but what's he really like? You know, it's not me, I know I'm not God, but, but I have a few pointers for him. I can, you know, give him a little advice, show him how to do some things, right? And maybe we get to that part where it's like, yeah, and you know, yeah, he adores me, but who cares? Like, it's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to fix my problems at work. It's not going to drive my kids to soccer practice. It seems irrelevant. And all of a sudden, this meaningful statement over time, it, it just kind of, it, it erodes. And it's just words. And so we're going to look at the, this pattern of erosion that the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans 1 so that we could figure out what, what can we do to stop that. To, what sort of maintenance, ongoing maintenance can we do to make sure that our faith, it doesn't erode over time? So we're going to start in Romans 1, beginning in verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key. It says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. It says they, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And, this is the, the first exchange. We're actually going to look at three different exchanges that we see in this, this pattern of decay. But the first one we see is this exchanging the glory of God for created things. Now, glory is, glory is kind of a difficult term. Like, what does that mean? It's one of those things that shows up in the Bible. But what are we actually talking about? Uh, one of the best definitions I've come across is from uh, a pastor out in the, the Midwest. He's also an author, wrote a lot of books. His name's John Piper. And one of the things he says is that uh, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, right? God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him because glory, glory is, uh, the way we ascribe glory to something is to be satisfied in it. Like we glorify God by actually delighting in him, by finding our, our joy and our satisfaction in him. And that's how we ascribe glory to something. Now, not everything we delight in is inherently delightful, you know, sometimes we delight in things that might not be that good, right? It might not be inherently glorious. But when something is inherently delightful, that object or that being, whatever it is, is in, in its essence glorious. Now, God, who's the creator of the world, who is perfect in all his ways, he is perfectly awesome and perfectly beautiful and perfectly loving and perfectly just, he, he's just perfect in every which way he is the most delightful being period like he there's nothing everything else that exists he made like he is just delightful in all he is he is glorious 
And God created the world to display this glory. And he created us to enjoy his glory, to delight in him. So we can find that same joy and satisfaction in him that he, he sees in himself. And it says that along the way, human beings saw how glorious and delightful God was. And they said, I actually find these created things more delightful. You know, picture this. Adam and Eve hanging out in the garden. These guys, you know, they're in the garden of Eden. Now, Eden means delight. They're in the garden of delight. God puts them here. It's awesome. They're looking around. They see the glory of God all around them. And then they actually get to hang out with God. They're like having afternoon tea with the creator of the universe. So they, they know how delightful he is. And all of a sudden, one day, they decide that a piece of fruit is more delightful than the creator of the universe. A piece of fruit? Come on. Maybe a steak, maybe bacon, but fruit, what's, what's going on here? It, it almost doesn't add up. Why in the world would they exchange the glory of the immortal God for a piece of fruit? But if you keep reading, in verse 25, Paul explains what's going on. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served created things rather than the creator. So before they started worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator, before they exchanged the glory of God for, uh, for created things, it says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So it wasn't like they were walking through the garden one day and saw a piece of fruit and were like, oh, that looks awesome. I know God said no, but I'm just gonna eat it anyway. No, as they were walking through, Satan takes the form of a serpent and he, he starts to, to challenge them. And he doesn't start by saying, hey guys, look how awesome this fruit is, you should eat it. No, he starts to, to challenge Eve's concept of God. And he, he starts to ask these, these questions. Did he really say that? Can you really trust him? Is he really who you think he is? And, and what Satan does is he, he exchanges the truth about God for a lie. And slowly, Eve's concept of God is, is eroded away. And once God is no longer who he is, once that, that truth is replaced with a lie, God becomes less delightful, less glorious, and, and now these other things start to look more and more glorious. And they exchange the glory of God for this created thing. And then from here, it gets worse because in verse 26, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And, you know, he's saying that after they exchanged the truth about God with a lie, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. And then they exchanged natural loving behaviors for these selfish passions. And, and he's not just picking on homosexuality because in verse 29, he goes on and he extends the list. He says, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips. Gossip made it in there. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invented new ways of doing evil. Got to come over to the Fusion Kids for this one. They disobeyed their parents. Yep, that made the list. Uh, and they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And this is the, the pattern of erosion 
that we see at the very beginning, but it's not like a one-time pattern. This is the pattern that has been recurring over and over and over again. Every time we, we step out into the world, this is the pattern of erosion that we're stepping into, that, that the, there are these lies about God that are trying to replace the truth about him. And as uh, the truth about God erodes, it leads to uh, an eroding worship, which leads to an eroding behavior. This is the pattern. Eroding truth leads to eroding worship, leads to eroding behavior. And then we end up with these behaviors that we recognize. Even sometimes we look at ourselves and we're like, man, why am I doing that? I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I'm, I'm better than this. And we look at our behavior, we recognize at this point something's off, right? We're not sure how we got there, but our immediate reaction often is, all right, let's fix the behavior, which is, which is good. You know, we want to curb behavior, but if all we're doing is modifying behavior, we're not fixing these, these more uh, substantial, kind of deeper problems that lead to the, the wrong behavior. And if we follow the chain all the way back up, it starts with exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Which is why the Apostle Paul will take the next 11 chapters of Romans to like, paint this portrait of who God is. To paint this, the truth about God. This amazing, amazing portrait. If you've never read through the book of Romans, it's incredible. The love of God for us. Because of course, even after we've continually exchanged all of the, made all of these bad exchanges and eroded our faith away into bad behavior... In that moment, God sent his son to die for us. That's what it says in, in Romans 5, where it's like, you know, when we were sinners, that's when God died for us. <laughs> that's when Jesus was sacrificed for us. In Romans 8, where it says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, how will he not along with him give us all things? Like, this is the picture of God painted through Romans, where we get to this place where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's incredible. So he takes 11 chapters to build up this portrait of God. And he ends in chapter 11 with this, this hymn of praise. And it's just praising God because your wisdom is, is beyond our wisdom. You're, you're just, you're incredible, all right? He ends with this song of praise. And then in chapter 12, he transitions. And I want you to flip over to chapter 12. Because later on in chapter 12, he's going to start to talk about these the right behaviors, right? Getting, getting our truth back in line leads to getting our worship back in line. Now he's going to give us the new behaviors to engage in. But before he does, in 12 verse 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, right? There's this urgency. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, right? In view of the, the mercy that Paul just unpacked for the last 11 chapters, in view of that amazing mercy, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, right? So I think in another way, you could say, in view of God's mercy, in view of who we know God to be, that there is a God, that it's not you, but he adores you, despite the fact that we really don't deserve it, he adores you. In light of that, he's saying, surrender, Right? And this is what Robert talked about a couple weeks ago. Surrender. That is the, the appropriate response when we understand who this God really is. Surrender. Offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. And then in verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. 
what, of course, is the pattern of this world? Well, it's that, that pattern that he laid out in chapter one. It's this pattern of erosion where we exchange the truth about God for a lie, exchange the glory of God for created things, and exchange natural behaviors for unnatural ones. This is the, the pattern of this world. And he's saying, guys, I know you get God's mercy. I know you have this picture in your head right now of how amazing God is, but you're going to step back out into the world. And as you do, there's a pattern right, that you're going to be stepping into, and, and you guys need to guard yourselves against this. Don't conform to this pattern, because you're going you're gonna to step out, and you're going to be bombarded with lies. So think about this. Adam and Eve in the garden, they have no sin nature. They have nothing but fruit to distract them, and there's one voice, and it's a snake that's speaking lies, and that was enough to set the whole thing off course. That was enough, all right? How hard is it going to be for us, all right? Fast forward to today, and we have, uh, you know, our own sin natures that are distracting us from God. And on top of that, we have everything from Netflix to social media to CNN and Fox News and the Eagles and the Vikings all trying to distract us from our, our creator. And then on top of that, we have countless lies that are just hitting us a thousand miles a minute every time we step out into the world. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, the ardent atheist who's out there saying, like, there's no God and you're stupid to believe in God. Because, you know, you hear something like that and you just kind of brush it off. But these little subtle lies, you know, much like Eve heard in the garden. It's like, did, did God really say that? Is that really what he's like? You know, he let that happen. Do you, do you really think that you can trust him now? And that's even when things are going well, but when you get the, the storms of life and you're just like these, these little lies coming in, trying to challenge who you believe God to be. Does he, does he really care about you? Is he really near you? You think he's near you? You're nothing. Do you, do you really believe that he's going to forgive you for that? Or, or maybe you hear this lie that says, God is, God is love. God is love. He's not going to judge anybody. Or you hear this lie that maybe, maybe you should buy a dog. You know, There's these subtle little lies that he tries to get in there to just pull you off course. Uh, never believe that last one. That's, ne that's straight from the evil one. Uh, <laughs> but he uses these, these little lies, right? And slowly, they just chip away. And it's not that it completely wrecks our, our view of God forever, but in, in these moments, all of a sudden, God is less glorious, and these other things become more glorious. God is less delightful, and these other things seem, they seem really good now. I'm going to choose this. And all of a sudden, our behavior follows. So Paul says, no, 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 don't conform to the pattern of this world. There's a pattern. It's out there. You're going to go into it. Do not conform to it. And he says, instead, he says, be, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there's, there's a, like a refreshing of the mind that needs to happen. It's like when you, you load a web page and it doesn't load properly, what do you do? You hit refresh, right? And what it does, is it sends the request back out and it brings the information back in again so it can be interpreted and put before you and it's hopefully in line at this place. We need to be refreshed. And in the same way that the pattern of this world isn't like a one-time thing, it's, you know, every time you step out the door, you're going to be faced with the pattern of this world. 
We need to be renewed in our minds regularly. We need this, this refreshing day after day after day. And as I, I read these uh, two verses here in Romans where it talks about don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it brings to mind Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says much the same thing, but it uses some different language, and I think it'll be really helpful for us. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, right? What he's saying is, blessed is the one who does not conform to the pattern of this world. Blessed is the one who doesn't step into that pattern of erosion. Instead, he says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. He's saying, hey, guys, you could be this tree, this firmly planted tree, right beside a river, a tree that is, is not going to erode over time, a tree whose leaf will never wither, despite the pattern of the world constantly working against it, is going to stand strong and is going to bear fruit if what? if we delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. What he's saying is the key to not conforming to this pattern of erosion is in our devotional lives. The key is actually having a, a vibrant, active devotional life. Now, I grew up in a church similar to Beacon. I grew up in Christian circles. And whenever I heard the term devotional life, immediately what came to mind was, well, read your Bible and pray. Uh, is that anybody else kind of, is that the picture that comes to mind? Read your Bible and pray, right? Uh, somewhere along the way, the richness of delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on a day and night got distilled down to you know, this mundane task of read the Bible and pray, read the Bible and pray. And uh, I'm sure this has never happened to you, but every so often I would read the Bible and I would pray and it was like boring, and uh, it kind of felt a little more like dying than like life affirming. And I was, you know, confused or uh, even frustrated at times where I'm just like, I, I, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, I'm doing it, but it doesn't seem to be working. I'm sure that's never happened to you guys. Uh, I'm also sure that you've never had uh, a season in life where you were doing pretty good and you're reading pretty consistently and then you kind of fell off a little bit and then the next thing you know, like two, three weeks go by and you're like, oh, I haven't done my devotions and, uh, and, and then all of a sudden you start to feel really guilty that you haven't been making time to spend with the Lord. But now the guilt that you have for not spending time with the Lord is keeping you from wanting to go back to him because you feel too guilty to like turn back to him. It's like, no, I can, you know, because I've come this far. And the very thing that was supposed to draw me closer to God is now keeping him away from me. And it's like something got out of sorts here. Uh, because I, I think that the devotional life, it's so much more than just this idea of reading the Bible and praying. Uh, and, and I think the devotional life isn't a single thing. It's not one expression. It's not like a one-size-fits-all thing that like this is what works for everybody. I think there, there are going to be things that work for you in certain seasons that don't work for you in other seasons, and they don't work for me ever, and, and that's okay. Uh, Thomas Kempis, he said, all cannot use one kind of spiritual exercise, but one is more useful for this person, another for that. In the time of temptation, we have need of some and of others in the time of peace and quietness. Some we like to have in mind when we're sad and others when we rejoice in the Lord. We, we need to hit the refresh. It's true. 
but it doesn't need to look the same for everyone, right? And I, I do want to stress this. Just because, just because one person's model of a devotional life doesn't work for everyone doesn't mean that all people don't need a devotional life at all times. I think we are all desperate for some active, vibrant devotional life, but it doesn't need to look the same for everyone. And that's, that's good. And that's actually, you, you, if you guys have been reading through the, uh, you know, the reading plan with us, reading through Genesis, God doesn't treat people the same. He doesn't interact with them the same. Like he showed up to Abraham, talked to him face to face, and then he wrestled with Jacob, and then he showed up to Joseph in a dream. Like he didn't do the same thing with everybody. And we need to find how, is, how are we able to engage with God in a significant way to be refreshed in the truth of who he is, but in a way that's meaningful to us. And, and it might look different at different times in our lives. Now, just because the, the devotional life isn't just one thing, it's not just one kind of homogenous, one size fits all, doesn't mean it's just anything either. Uh, it doesn't mean that whatever gives you life and makes you feel alive, that's good for you. Because there could be bad things that do that. There could be things that draw us away from God. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 1. Because as he, he talks about the devotional life, he says, Delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And there's four elements in here that I think are going to be really helpful for us. I actually think they're four essential, like non-negotiables, that we need to incorporate into our devotional life, whether, whatever the expression looks like. And so the first is, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. He says day and night. Whatever your devotional exercises are, they need to happen every day. And I'm not saying that in the sense you should do it every day. That, that's not what I mean. I'm saying we are desperate for it every day. Like, so if you miss a day, like, don't feel guilty. It's like, who fasted yesterday? Anybody do the fast with us? Wow, the 12 o'clock service, you guys are not the, it's all right, no, it's, it's all right. I, I know you get here late, you're the sleepy ones. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if, if you were to, you know, when you fasted yesterday, you felt the effects of that, right? You hungered throughout the day. And if you were to fast again today and not eat, I wouldn't turn to you and be like, shame on you, you didn't eat today, you should feel guilty for not eating. Like, that, it's the same thing with the devotional life. Um, when I say we need to do it every day, I'm not saying like, shame on you if you don't. I'm saying our, our souls are hungering and thirsting for this. In the same way we need to eat and sleep to be refreshed physically, we need to engage with God daily. I think we're, we're desperate for it. That's the first essential. Uh, the second essential is, he says, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Scripture, scripture needs to be central to our devotional life. Uh, but what that means, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to get up and read a passage of the Bible and, you know, journal and, you know, highlight stuff. It might not be what it is for you. I don't know if you know this, but for the first 1,500 years of the church, the average Christian didn't read the Bible ever because they didn't have a Bible and they couldn't read. And people had devotional lives even before they could have a personal reading time with God. But that didn't mean that there was no scripture involved. And so a lot of times they would come together and they would talk about scripture and they would reflect on these things. Scripture still needs to be central, but it doesn't have to be this, you know, you read a passage and journal it. I know a lot of you are doing the reading plan. Awesome. I hope you keep doing it. That's great. But if, uh, who, who is doing the reading plan? Are you guys doing the reading plan? How do you guys like the videos so far? Aren't they awesome? Does anybody feel like the videos are more helpful than reading the Bible itself? <clears throat> Don't feel bad about that. 
all right? For, for, you know, centuries, people didn't read the Bible on their own, and that was okay. They had other people explaining what was going on. And if that's where you're at, don't feel guilty. Take advantage of the resources that are available, whether it's videos from the Bible Project or podcasts or uh, I, I love listening to sermons. I find that really refreshing. I listen to, you know, other, not our sermons, uh, other, other pastor's sermons. <laughs> no, I get enough of this. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really, like when I'm driving and stuff, I love listening to that stuff. And books, like books that unpack scripture, super helpful. Uh, if these things are, are working for you, Totally jump on this, but, but make sure that scripture is still central, that it's not just like tagging a scripture verse on the end of something, but that it really is unpacking scripture. Because this is, this, remember, the erosion, it begins when we lose the truth about God. We need, we are desperate for the truth about God, and that is going to come through scripture. And so go back to scripture. However you're able to uh, get to it in a way that you're able to connect with it, get back to scripture daily. The third, uh, actually, one, one more caveat with that. Uh, we live in an age where we have access to amazing resources, things like the Bible Project, amazing podcasts. Uh, it also means there's a lot of garbage out there. <laughs> so just be cautious. Like, if you are using other resources, other books or, you know, sermons and stuff like that, be cautious. Uh, always feel free to, like, talk to, like, one of us or somebody you know here at Beacon who's uh, more mature in their faith or solid, been around longer, because... Uh, I mean, especially if, if, if anybody's on TV, be super cautious of those people. <laughs> uh, and uh, if anybody tells you that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life right now, it's a slightly different message than you get out of the New Testament. Uh, so just, just be cautious uh, and, and totally vet some of these things with us. We'd always be happy to give recommendations. We always have a bunch of books in the Resource Center as well to help guide you guys. Uh, but yeah, we have amazing resources at our disposal now in the 21st century to, to access scripture. Use what works for you. And don't feel bad or ashamed about that. This is, this is God's gift to us. Uh, so let it be centered on scripture. And then the, uh, the third element is meditate. He says, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. Uh, this, is, this is huge because we can actually become really, really knowledgeable about scripture. We can become scripture experts and suck. It's true. They were called the Pharisees. Jesus actually chastised them and he said, you guys search the scriptures. Sorry, I'm bouncing around with the slides, Anne. That's my fault. Going back, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Jesus is saying, hey, reading the Bible, being an expert in the Bible, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find life. Because reading the Bible isn't how we gain life. We gain life by coming to Jesus. And, and so when we are uh, engaging with Scripture, we don't want to just read. We don't want to just study. We don't want to just make it an academic uh, exercise. We want to meditate on it. And this, this is so huge. I, I, from my own personal experience, I say this is like the critical app when it comes to a devotional life because I, I know seasons of life where I would be reading and praying every day, but the meditation piece was lost and I was just skipping past that and I feel it in my soul after a little while because we're, we're desperate not to just hear the word, but to, to let it become part of us. And I know meditation's kind of like a scary idea. Not, maybe not scary, but it's like, what is it? And maybe that's just for spiritual leads. Uh, 
I love what John Ortberg says in his book. Uh, he says, if you can be anxious about something, you know how to meditate. Because it's the same exact thing. You know, like when you, something, you know, is on your mind, you just can't get it off your mind, you're like thinking about it in every which way from a thousand different angles, and you're like replaying it in your mind. That's, that's meditation. Uh, and when we do that with scripture, we're actually ch we're chewing on it. We're trying to figure out what a, not just the application. So uh, this, is, this is important. We're, we're New Yorkers. We are competent people. We are doers. And so sometimes we can approach scripture and figure out, all right, what do I need to do? And so we read it. All right, this is what I need to do. Uh, but, but there's a step we're missing, right, between the, you know, the reading and the application. We want to read for the implications. Think about not just the application, but the implications. What is this telling me, particularly what is this telling me about God? Because that's, the, remember, that's the problem that we face is we're, we're being bombarded with lies about God, and we need to reinforce the truth about God. And so meditating on Scripture, what is this telling me about God? What is this revealing about his nature and his character and his goodness? Then respond to that with action. But, but first, let's let Scripture be what it, it first and foremost is. It's a book about God even before it's a book about us. And so taking that time to really chew on it. You know, a lot of you, if you're doing the reading plan, you've been reading about Joseph, for instance. And, you know, you could read through the book of Joseph and, or sorry, the, the story of Joseph and amazing stuff. Joseph is like, uh, sold into slavery by his brothers and thrown into a well and then he's uh, thrown in prison, like some really harsh stuff going on. And you read this and you're like, why is God allowing this? But, but maybe you, as you're reading, you pick up this, this recurring statement that every time something bad happens to Joseph, it keeps saying that, but the Lord was with him. You read that and you're like, oh, that's, that's cool. And, and you take time to meditate on it, to just reflect, like, what does it mean the Lord was with him? You know, God could have stopped it, but he didn't. He had a plan, and we're going to get there if you keep reading the story of Joseph. But he allows this to happen, but he didn't send Joseph in alone. He went with him. And it starts to, to show us that God, what God is like. He's not a God who's going to just abandon us. He's not, he doesn't have, like, no purpose for these things. He's a kind and loving and near God. And we, we read and we meditate to know what he is like. And then the, the fourth uh, uh, essential element of a devotional life is delight. Because uh, remember, if we have the truth about God in place, it leads to us glorying in God, delighting in him, right? That's the whole point. It's not just about filling our heads with knowledge. It's about knowing who he is so we can understand how delightful he is so we can worship him, right? If there's no delight in our, our devotional life, then we need to fight for that. We need to search for it. And the best way that I, I've learned to uh, delight in my devotional life is to always come back to the gospel. Because that is the most glorious moment in history is when the creator of the universe sacrificed his son for us. And as we're reading scripture, if every time we're trying to see how is this unpacking the gospel for me and bringing my attention back there, we get to see part of him that is delightful. So, you know, you, you take the story of Joseph and you say, yeah, God is near me and that's awesome. But then you, you draw it back to Jesus and you're like, God, God isn't just alongside of me in my pain. He's not just with me, kind of putting his arm on my shoulder, comforting. God actually entered into my pain. And he entered into my, my suffering and my betrayal, all of that. He, he took it on. And any, any ounce of suffering that I feel is only a, a, a surface, a surface like an inch of the miles of suffering that he took on my behalf. 
And then when, when Jesus was suffering on my behalf on the cross, crying out to his father, his father was not near. So the God who draws near to me abandoned his own son so that he could draw near to me. Because that's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. That he forsook his own son so that you, you could be saved and so that your suffering will end and you will have joy. And for me, when I, I pull these things back to the cross and back to Jesus, what it does is it, it stirs in my heart again just the beauty and the glory and the majesty of my, my God causes me to fall in love with him all over again. And I don't know about you, but I need this every day. I can't, I can't rely on what I heard yesterday. I have to come back to this every day and be refreshed in the gospel because it just, the world, it just has these lies and it chips away at it and I, for, I forget and everything starts to fall apart. And so my hope for you guys is that, that you'll recognize that we live in a hostile world, that there are these, these forces working against us, these erosive forces. So it's, it's so crucial that we have this active, vibrant, devotional life that we're, we're building into, that we're connecting with our creator, and, and that we're doing it in such a way that we are delighting in his word, meditating on it day after day after day, being refreshed in the gospel. And, and our hope is that at the end of 2018, our little mini creed will actually be more substantial, more meaningful for you then than it is even today. Let me pray for you. Father, you are so good and so kind and so generous. And your mercy is just astounding. God, we, we just so often turn away from you. We exchange the truth about you for a lie. And we exchange your glory for, for meaningless, futile things. Pursuing them instead of you. And in the end, we, we exchange the, the good works that you've prepared for us for, for selfishness. God, we confess this, but we also recognize that after we made all these exchanges, you exchanged your son for us, and we just praise you for the forgiveness that we have in you. We pray that the day after day, we'll be refreshed with the good news of who you are. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name.